You're listening to Mission Lab. Mission Lab. From our living new man, Ben Here's our parents, Sean and Camille Brace. Hello, folks. This is Mission Lab, of course, episode 63, the title of which is Cultural Exegetes. I'm here by myself today. Camille is actually on Cape Cod in Massachusetts visiting her mother, trying to get every little last ounce of summer that she can. Um, So I'm here by myself for the week alone. I had a great day yesterday, had a... uh, spiritual retreat, a personal spiritual retreat, took the day, went down to the coast, the main coast, to a place where I, um, I've gone a few other times for these days of quiet reflection and prayer, and uh, was just there in this beautiful, beautiful location, and enjoyed myself. Um, so, But I'm back here today and looking to share some thoughts with you about a subject that is very important and one that I'm passionate about. And I, of course, will break it down a little bit more. What in the world do I mean by cultural exegetes? Um, Yeah, so let me just jump right into it. This stems from, and we've no doubt touched on this a little bit in the past, um, but this stems from the, the idea that we truly need to be missional in the full sense of the term. And as such, the task of the missionary, which we are all called to be, is to be somebody who studies and understands and interprets the culture around it that it's been sent to. The missionary, he or she, has been sent to a specific place in a specific time and location. And we need to ask the question, what would the good news look and sound like to this particular group of people in a way that makes sense to them? Um, I think, and this is something that uh, recently I was um, sort of up against as as we were um, at some meetings recently, I think one of our challenges as um, evangelists if I can use that term uh, broadly and in reference to the way that we typically do evangelism is that we kind of have this one size fits all um, approach. Like here's the method you use, here's the technique. And we have like, we just give people advice on different techniques to use as though they were universal in effectiveness. So, it's like, oh, no, you know, you got to do uh, your meetings on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Friday nights. Like, if you're going to do your your Revelation seminar, make sure it's Monday, Wednesday, and Friday nights. That's the best time to do them. And we sort of uh, get the impression that, yeah, like, there's just these universal techniques that will... Um, you know, work everywhere. And so it's just a matter of getting the right techniques, techniques, uh, just finding the right formula. 
uh, in many ways, the attractional church, and I'm using that term, you know, broadly, of course, um, the attractional approach is very, very formulaic. You get good preaching, you get good uh, children's program, you get good music, and you're off and running. Um, at the same time, I recognize that uh, we could give the impression, and sometimes I might get into this mentality myself, uh, that a missional approach is also about getting the right techniques. It's like, okay, if you have a missional community that meets on this particular night and you do this exact thing and you have, you know, a meal at the beginning rather than a meal at the end or, you know, whatever the case is, um, I, what, I, what I want to make sure that we do not do is simply try to convince people to use our techniques. That's not what we're trying to do. You know, whether it's with our restarted church or whether it's with our missional communities, um, the missional movement and approach and what I would maybe call the biblical approach is not simply the exportation, if that's a word, exporting techniques. It's not saying, okay, use these methods, use these techniques, and they'll work everywhere. What we are trying to urge people to understand is that um, we are not trying to prescribe a certain way to do church and mission. We are trying to communicate uh, principles that help us be the church and be on mission. Um, what, What we've done by and large is that we have created leaders and missionaries who are thinkers of other men's thoughts. Like you go to seminary or you go to, this is nothing as seminary. I love the seminary, Andrews University Seminary at least. But we, we, what we're trying to do is just like train people in techniques. But what we really, 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 really need to be doing is training people how to exegete the culture they are trying to serve and reach so they can figure out how the gospel would look and sound like in their context. Um, so just, just briefly, um, uh, what does the word exegete mean? Well, an exegete is one, it's a big word I know, but is a person who interprets a particular text or document to understand its meaning. So it doesn't import the meaning into the text. That's what a lot of us do say if we're biblical exegetes, um, we're trying to read the biblical text and understand what the text is saying, not impose or import our particular uh, meaning into the text. So we're using tools to interpret it, to say, okay, what is this text saying rather than what do I think it's saying? Um, it studies the document carefully to understand it, its own meaning. So when we talk about um, being cultural exegetes, what I mean by that is we are called to listen to and understand the context to which we've been sent. Um, And we do this all the time with missionaries, overseas missionaries. We send them to Africa, we send them to Asia, we send them to South America, and we give them a lot of training and how to do cross-cultural evangelism. 
And um, they spent lots of time learning the ways of that, the customs, the traditions of that particular uh, place and culture, and they learn how to express the gospel and live out the gospel in ways that will not distract those people from the essence of what you're trying to communicate. Um, so like we do that all the time with overseas missionaries, but for some reason we don't recognize the need and the importance of doing it in our own context in the West. When the reality is the average, I would say Christian and especially Seventh-day Adventists, and we're just talking about the average Seventh-day Adventists, never mind the uh, highly conservative one, the average Seventh-day Adventist is very much at odds with the existing culture. We do not oftentimes know the language that people use. We don't understand the practices and customs, which, by the way, are amoral. That is to say, they do not have any moral value, whether immoral or moral, like whether you eat with a fork or chopsticks, that's an amoral concern. That's a very extreme example. But my point is there are ways that every culture, every people group, there are ways of doing life and and and, and values that they have that if we are not sensitive to those things, we will distract them from hearing the essence of what we're trying to share with them. Um, so, you know, just as a very, very quick example, if, uh, if I'm going into a neighborhood and, again, this is just a very, very quick example. If I'm going into a neighborhood and the people there are rabid, uh, you know, New England Patriots fans. It's probably not, and I don't know that, it's probably not a good idea for me to go in wearing a, um, you know, Pittsburgh Steelers jersey. Like, stand up and preach to people wearing a Pittsburgh Steelers jersey. That's just a very, very, very shallow, simple example, but I, I trust you know what I'm, what I'm getting at. Um, one very uh, kind of funny example, and again, this is a, a very simple and... and um, and, uh, you know, somewhat shallow example. But when I was in Australia last September uh, and I was chatting with a few people, uh, much to my surprise, there was actually quite a few fans of the National Football League, what they refer to as gridiron football. Um, you know, the NFL here in the U.S., American football. Uh, and so I got to talking with uh, a number of people about um, you know, football and specifically the New England Patriots. And um, I said something that kind of got some people laughing. And I was like, what's so funny? And I had said, oh, yeah, I root for the New England Patriots. Now, it was quickly explained to me that the term root, R-O-O-T, in Australia it has a lot different meaning than what it does in the United States and in Canada. I'm not sure about other English-speaking Western countries, but 
Um, when I say I am rooting for the Patriots, what I mean by that is I am a fan of theirs. I'm cheering for them. I am, you know, hoping that they win. When you use the term root in Australia, that is a term that is used for having sexual relations. In many ways, uh, it is another word for the F word. So uh, anyway, they, they chuckled about that. And they said, you know, you know look, look, at, look at here, man. They're like, you probably shouldn't tell people that you are rooting for a team when you're in Australia. Uh, and so I made note of that. And I adjusted my speech accordingly. I'm sure I slipped up a time or two as well after that. But I became aware that you do not say you root for somebody in the sports context. Again, that's just a very, very simple example of of understanding and being sensitive to the cultural realities of a group of people to which you've been sent. I learned my lesson because when I was younger, uh, 20, 21 years old, I spent a uh, a year as a, a student missionary in Scotland. And um, I can remember little expressions that people in Scotland, <coughs> excuse me, people in Scotland will use um, and w- expressions that meant different things to an American. And I spent a lot of time trying to insist that, oh, no, this is the right way to say that. And I was trying to I was trying to import my American expressions into Scotland instead of just adapting to and uh, embracing the way that they said expressions. Again, just for a little simple example. Um, but the point is, we need to study and examine the values and methods and um, and uh, you know longings that each culture has, so that we can share the good news in a language that makes sense to them. Um, so it's all about, and here's a big word: contextualization. Contextualization. What would the good news? Uh, look like and sound like to this group of people to which I've been sent. And here's a little clue. It's not simply about updating our backgrounds on our PowerPoint slides for our evangelistic meetings. It's certainly not less than that, but it is so much more than that um, as we seek to uh, learn how to live out the gospel in ways, again, that will not be a distraction to the people we're trying to reach. So um, I think you probably get it, but uh, I, I want to launch off from there and kind of pull back the curtain and look for a scriptural basis for this and um, ponder some uh, uh, Ellen White thoughts on this and then the implications and how this could, how we could practically live out as cultural exegetes as we seek to share the gospel in a way that makes sense to people and live out and serve them in ways that is not distracting or offensive. So uh, very simple. The the classic example of of this scripturally is uh, Acts 17, Paul, the great missionary. Um, This is a classic example, an easy example, but one that has uh, great uh, implications for this topic. Um, 
basically the bottom line is Paul is in Athens and uh, it says in Acts chapter 17 that he reasoned in the synagogue, this is verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happen to be there. So we see, by the way, Paul adjusting his methods to reach the people in different contexts. He is, number one, going to the synagogue where he's interacting with the Jews and the Gentile you know, converts there. And then he is, and he's not just waiting, okay, I'm just going to do my thing here. He's going into the marketplace. He is being a good missionary. He is going to where the people are, and he is seeking to express the gospel in the context of where the people live and operate and navigate. Um you know, when we expect people to come to us, we're asking them to be the missionaries. So Paul was a good missionary. He went out to where they were. Now, as he's there and he's speaking, there's some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who hear him. And Paul is speaking about Christ's death and his resurrection. And they're like, whoa, what's going on with this? What's this all about? These um, these Stoic philosophers were, of course, polytheists. They believed in many gods. And so they they hear what Paul's saying. They're like, hold on, we want to hear more about what this dude is saying. And so they actually take him and they bring him to the Areopagus, which was a raised hill there in the center of Athens, right uh, a stone's throw or so away from the great Acropolis. And um, so the Parthenon there in Greece, I've not been to Athens, but I know it's a obviously a very important and significant place for uh, Greek culture and philosophy. And so they say, hey, come come to the Areopagus and share these things with the people that you know are there. And what they would do at the Areopagus, according to <coughs> excuse me, we still have coughs going on. Uh, according to Acts, uh, all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. So these people just love to go to the Areopagus and they just like to kind of like uh, one-up each other in some new thought and philosophy and, and teaching. And so uh, these uh, philosophers have said, hey, come with us. Let's go to the Areopagus. So Paul goes there and they just put him down in front of everybody and he proceeds to preach a sermon on the Old Testament. And he talks about Abraham and he talks about, no, that's not what he does. He doesn't pull out like his his message on the 2300 days. He doesn't, um, you know, talk about the importance of needing to keep the Sabbath. He doesn't talk about those things. Not again that those things are wrong, but he adjusts his his presentation on the gospel to what the audience needed to hear. And he actually says in uh, verse 22 and 23, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. So by the way, I mean, there's so many lessons and implications for this experience. Paul doesn't say, hey, you heathens. Uh, That's not the first thing he says. He doesn't say, you know, you guys are uh, a bunch of backslidden, you know, off the mark, crazy people. He says, hey, guys, I notice you're very religious. Like, you guys are really committed to this stuff. He affirms them. And then he says, for as I was passing through 
and considering the objects of your worship. So Paul is there, and as he's going through, he's trying to take note as he's on his way to the Areopagus of what they were valuing, the things that they were important to them. He's trying to, in a very quick way, he's trying to exegete the culture. He's trying to size them up. He's trying to figure out what are the ways that these these people, these philosophers, what are the ways that they express themselves? What are the values they have? And he says, I, I, can, I was considering the objects of your worship, and he says, I even found an altar with this inscription on it. As he was walking by, he noticed this altar. To the unknown God. So there's some, you know, there we, and we could break this down a little bit more, but apparently there was this, this, um, this reverence that was being paid to this, this God that they were not aware of, and um, so what he says is, therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. So he is like, instead of again, instead of like tearing down their belief in all of these different gods, instead of, instead of trying to um, dispute with them about the reality and the truthfulness of these various gods, he says, you know what? This God that you are not aware of, yeah, that God right there, that's actually the one I'm going to talk to you about. And so he takes their understanding, their cultural understanding, and he places the God of Scripture within that context. And uh, so then he goes, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Really, 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 really fascinating. Paul does not give them a Bible study on the book of Leviticus. Paul does not present to them, you know, uh, lesson number four in the 28 fundamental belief series. Again, I'm not saying these things are wrong, but he understood his cultural context and he decided to familiarize himself enough with their own poets, with their own cultural priests, if you will, those that were respected and admired and those that they looked up to, he familiarized himself with their cultural context and used it in a way that was able to connect God with those cultural understandings. So um, anyway, he goes on to share more, and he talks about God appointing a day when there's a judgment, uh, and he talks about the resurrection, which was a very crazy thought to them. Uh, it says in verse 32, and when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, some mocked while they said, we will hear you good on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, verse 34, some men joined them, joined him and believed among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris and others with them. So obviously, uh, you know, um, 
Dionysius and this woman Damaris were people of influence because they get named uh, specifically. And of course, uh, Dionysius was one of those Areopagites, the ones who went up there to the mountains. So Paul's missionary approach was effective as he reappropriated the uh, cultural um, context that he was in. Now, this was Paul's method as a missionary. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he's clear on this, and we have to you know, plumb this for all it's worth. But 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is very, very clear on this. He was a true missionary. It says <coughs> in verse 19, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews, I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. And this is the the punchline. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might, that I may be partaker of it with you. So Paul says, listen, as long as I'm not sinning, he says, I'm not, I'm not like, I'm not turning my back on the law that uh, is, you know, the moral law, but I'm willing to compromise on the little law, man-made laws and rules. Uh, but he said, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I'm going to examine the culture that I've been sent. I'm not going to approach Jews and Gentiles the same way. I'm not going to do Jewish things when I'm trying to reach Gentiles. I'm not going to do Gentile things to reach Jews. I'm going to examine and, and, and study and exegete the culture, and I'm going to live out and express the gospel in a way that makes sense to that particular group of people so that they are not distracted by secondary concerns that would distract a person from hearing and witnessing the essence of the gospel. Now, we're not simply, when I, when I talk about this, I'm not simply talking about marketing. Like, okay, how can we, mar- you know, what can we do to put a better brochure together in an attractive way to get people to come to our meetings? That's not, you know, again, it can be, that can be part of it, but it's so much more than that. Um, how, you know, it's, again, how can I live out and share the gospel in a way that will not distract people from the essence of that gospel? So I want to share just very quickly two quotes that are powerful quotes that speak to this very point. Uh, for those who require some sort of validation beyond scripture, Adventists that is, I know there are people who are like that because sometimes scripture is not enough, sadly. But again, I am being sensitive to my cultural context. And I realize there are some people who are listening for whom uh, I need to, um, you know, to the Ellen White quoting, I need to become an Ellen White quoting. Not that I don't like Ellen White, you get what I'm saying. Uh, so anyway, this is from the book Ministry of Healing, page 25. Uh, she says, while Jesus ministered to the poor, he studied 
also to find ways of reaching the rich. He did what? He studied, he exegeted, he analyzed, he interpreted, he tried to figure out ways that he could live out his life so that he could find an avenue to their hearts. He sought the acquaintance of the wealthy and cultured Pharisee, the Jewish nobleman, and the Roman ruler. Now check this out. He accepted their invitations, attended their feasts, made himself familiar with their interests and occupations that he might gain access to their hearts and reveal to them the imperishable riches. So he studied and he, and he, and he made himself familiar with their interests and occupations. In other words, Jesus asked himself, how can I, how can I understand the longings and desires and the cultural customs of these particular people so that I can find an an avenue to their heart that will not distract them with inconsequential issues. Again, I'm not going to use the term root if that term is understood in a different way by the people I'm trying to reach. I'm not going to use a fork if that group wants to use chopsticks. Again, very simple, shallow example. But uh, the second quote is, she says, we are to study the field carefully. We're to do what? Study the field carefully and are not to think that we must follow the same methods in every place. Whatever may have been your former practice, she's speaking to someone specific in this context, it is not necessary to repeat it again and again in the same way. God would have new and untried methods followed. Very simple. Study the field. Figure out what makes sense to them. Figure out how the gospel would sound like good news and look like good news to those people. And just because in Indiana it may look like going to a, uh, you know, a... uh, Indiana Pacers game doesn't mean that it's going to mean in Bangor, Maine, that I'm going to, you know, fill in the blank, whatever it is. I'm just thinking off the top of my head. But figure out ways that make sense to the culture to which you've been sent. You may, it may be that this culture does not, uh, you know, if I, if I invite somebody over to my house for a meal in Bangor, I'm not going to say everywhere and every time and every place, somebody needs to invite somebody to a meal. In other words, it may be a lot more intimidating for me to invite somebody to a meal to my house if I'm in Africa or I'm in Thailand or I'm in Dallas, Texas. Understand the cultural norms when it comes to the people to whom you've been sent. That's the point. And so this is going to take a it's going to take some practice, it's going to take some listening, it's going to take some observation, not just trying to come with my methods and we're going to use these methods come what may. Um, you know, be students of that culture. So, how can we be cultural exegetes? So I'm going to offer uh just three quick ways to do it. I would hope that um it would be self-evident. But again, I just think we need to do a much better job of teaching people to be students 
of a place and people rather than simply the imitators of certain methodologies. Um, there's far too much of that going on. Again, we, you know, people should be empowered to creatively express and share the gospel in ways that make sense to their context. If we just give them a canned program, you know, a, and I'm going to say it, a, uh, um, actually, I'm not going to say it because I can't think of what it is. Uh, but, you know, we just give people a, a DVD and we say, hey, here, go to Africa and preach these sermons, share him. That's what it is. Uh, you know, God bless. There's lots of good that's happened. I'm not saying we, you know, God can't use those methods, nor am I saying that he doesn't, nor, you know, I'm just saying, like, we need to make sure that we are being sensitive to the culture to which we've been sent, not only because it's going to be more effective, but we sometimes have the tendency to elevate our cultural practices on the level of morality. And so we might be, you know, colonizing um, a place and rather than just sharing the gospel, we're trying to turn them into Americans or instead of uh, just getting people to uh, be reconciled to Christ and the, and the beautiful truths of Adventist understanding, we might be actually um, exposing them to and insisting that they become cultural Adventists and elevating that cultural uh, approach to the level of morality. Anyway, I'll get back to that in a second. But here, here's the three ways to be cultural exegetes, just my very quick thinking. Number one, listen to people. Very simple. I know we've talked about that before. We had a whole, whole episode on that. Um, but just a good reminder, just listen to people. Listen to their stories. Listen to their longings. Listen to their values. What is it that they value? What are the hopes and dreams that they have? What are the stories that they share with one another? What are the metaphors that they use? Um, there's going to be, again, kind of cultural realities in you know Bangor that are going to be different than Pittsburgh or going to be different than uh, you know San Francisco, like really understanding the stories and the values and the longings and the uh, desires of, of, uh, of uh, that particular context is critically important. Um, I would also say attend events, programs, uh, government meetings in your city. Um, that's where you're going to get a real good pulse of what are the priorities of the people in that place. So, you know, what are when you attend these places, what are the major issues the people in your city or town are worrying about? Here in Bangor, there is um, a lot of concern for uh, about, um, you know, uh, opioid epidemic and crisis. Um, so that's, you know, instead of saying, hey, I'm going to come to town and I'm going to put on a vegetarian cooking class, which might be effective in... Berkeley, California, uh, maybe I'm going to say, you know what, we're going to have a seminar on the opioid concerns. Now, as you know, I'm not a big fan of seminars and events anyway, but you get what I'm saying. 
you're going to approach each place differently based upon what the pressing concerns are. Um, what does your city spend money on addressing? You know, maybe there's huge priority to get uh, cleaner water or maybe uh, there is huge budgetary line item for updated um, uh, playground equipment. Well, now I know that children are very high priority in the city. So what would it look like to express and live out the gospel in a way that makes sense to people who value family life and, and, and benefits? Um, what gets celebrated in that city or town? Um, you know, every June, that city throws a Mardi Gras. I mean, that's in February, right? But, you know, every, you know, the city celebrates this on every June or whatever. Uh, so just be a student of uh, that culture and the things that get celebrated. Um, yeah, going to Korea and uh, celebrating the 4th of July probably is not going to work. Um, so, you know. What, what, what do people celebrate? Number three, notice where people gather. What eating establishments do they go to? What events? Um, you know, again, Ellen White said, Jesus made himself familiar with the people's interests and occupations that he might gain access to their hearts. So, you know, you might notice, oh man, there's a lot of people that go to uh, Little League baseball games. So maybe it'd be better for me to Instead of insisting that people come to this program um, in, uh, on, you know, uh, again, stop smoking seminar, um, maybe I should actually just go to where other people are, to their Little League baseball games. Whatever the case is, where do people gather? Uh, we can examine those questions. Um, and just little things like, you know, what are, what are you know, what do, what do the signs say in this town? If I'm literally walking down the street, what are the stores that are here? Uh, you know, what, um, where, where, uh, where are the schools? You know, th this type of thing. Like, what? Just trying to get an understanding of what people value. But of course, a lot of it will just depend on incarnation and uh, listening to individual people. Um, I had an interesting experience as, as by way of illustration, um, <coughs> a couple of weeks ago. I was invited by one of my Jewish friends to go to this meeting at the local uh, Orthodox synagogue. Here in Bangor, we actually have quite a large Jewish population. Um, there's three synagogues, kind of one, two, three, uh, Reformed, Conservative, and Orthodox. And as you probably know, Orthodox are the most uh, conservative branch of Judaism, Um and so we have all three branches represented here in Bangor. And so this friend of mine who kind of is connected with the conservative synagogue is connected to the Orthodox synagogue. There was a special guest speaker that came and was presenting at the Orthodox synagogue. And so this is the first time I had a chance to go to the Orthodox synagogue. So I went and uh, it's interesting because I learned my lesson the first time um, I interacted with somebody who was Orthodox. Orthodox leaning. Uh, my rabbi friend, who is a rabbi at the conservative synagogue, still has leans con uh, uh, Orthodox. And I had met his wife one day, 
And uh, I shook her hand, and after I shook her hand, one of the other uh, Jewish gentlemen that we'd be hanging out with, he goes, oh, you know you're not supposed to have contact. Orthodox Jews do not have intergender physical contact. And, you know, she said, oh, no, no, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's fine. I'm, I'm not offended by it. Um, but that's apparently a thing. Like, men and women do not mingle unless you're married, of course, but you do not have physical contact between the genders. Um, when you go to a, a an Orthodox synagogue as well, men and women are not allowed to sit together. And so I went to the synagogue, and they're having evening prayers as well. And sure enough, the men sit down on the floor and the women have to sit back in kind of like stadium seating. So when I went there, I realized that I will not try to shake hands with any women that are here at this, uh, at this meeting. And so I didn't. Um, just because, again, I'm wanting to be culturally sensitive. In some ways, that's really what this is all about, cultural sensitivity 101. Like how do how can we have basic interaction in a cross cultural context? Um, so yeah, it's just learning the little cultural um, values, practices, customs, and not doing anything that would offend them to such a degree that they would not want to have further interaction with you, and um, also learning ways to explain and live out the gospel in an attractive way. Now, uh, for those listening, again, I'm not trying to convert any, any, any you know, uh, Jewish people. I'm just like merely saying, if I want to serve and bless such people, I need to be sensitive to the ways that they practice their faith and they practice their life. Because if I'm not, then I won't even be able to enter into their life and be a blessing to them. What was also fascinating as I was listening to the guest presenter, it was just so evident to me that we are largely ignorant of the issues, concerns, and questions that the broader culture outside of Adventism is considering. Like we, again, and we've said this before, but we are, largely answering questions that nobody is asking. Uh, we can put on our Revelation seminar. We're not going to get any Jews to come to it, probably. Um, they're not worried about what the book of Revelation says about the Antichrist. You may find one, but by and large, they're not going to show up at a, a Christian meeting to um, listen to some exposition on the book of Revelation. Again, not saying you don't do it. There's many people who are, but what are the concerns, the longings, the questions that, that are relevant to that particular culture? Again, I'm not saying I'm trying to convert any of them. I'm just trying to be the presence of Jesus in their life. And so what are the ways that I could live out the good news in ways that would be a blessing to them that would not distract them from the essence of what I'm trying to communicate via my actions? So does this make sense, hopefully? Um, <clears throat> now, before closing, I would like to just sort of backtrack a little bit, and I want to talk about the word culture. Um, 
I used to think that culture was this big bad thing. Like we do things in the name of culture and we're basically uh, we're basically selling out to the world's ways rather than God's ways. But it all of a sudden occurred to me that there is no such thing as a cultural church or mission. What I mean by a cultural, literally one word, a cultural. You know, we know what uh, asexual is, to use a very crude example, somebody who is not particularly sexual. Um, there is no such thing as culture neutral expression of church or mission. Everything we do, everything, everything we do is through some sort of cultural expression. Even if, you know, even if when we go to church, we wear suits, we sing hymns accompanied by an organ while sitting in pews, that is cultural. That is a cultural expression of church and mission. Like, nobody has some amoral or, or supramoral way of doing church or mission as though we uh as though we 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 have some sort of like uh pipeline to heaven like oh no 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 my way of doing it is heavenly your way of doing it is worldly again we're not talking about the moral law sinning we're not we're not talking about yeah when we get together our custom is to um stab each other with knives and it's just a cultural practice. That's not what we're talking about. That would be a a space moral issue. What we're talking about are things that are morally neutral, that are culturally um, that are culturally uh, practiced. So there's nothing more or less worldly about, as the example I just gave, wearing suits, singing hymns accompanied by an organ. There's nothing more or less worldly about that than any other cultural expression. There is nothing more or less worldly about going to a worship service wearing jeans and a t-shirt. That's not more worldly than wearing a suit. There's, And again, we've talked about this in the past. It's just an easy example. But culture is a neutral thing by its very nature to the degree that it does not violate clear moral issues. Again, if there's a culture that practices polygamy and we don't say, okay, I'm going to become a polygamist to reach that culture, that's not what we're talking about. That is clearly a moral issue. But if a, if a particular culture says, you know, what we really like to do is we like to hang out at a local bar Going to that bar and sitting next to somebody and interacting with them is not a moral issue. Now, I'm I'm not in favor of me, you know, pushing back a few. I'm I'm not saying that's not a moral issue, but you understand what I'm saying. Um, culture is an amoral thing, so, you know, just at its core. Um, now, some cultures. Some cultural practices are wrong. Some cultural practices are holy and pure. But just as a, as a general idea, 
the idea of cultural practices in general are neither right nor wrong, again, unless it does violate a moral principle. So, uh, again, we all express ourselves through some cultural packaging, okay? Does that make sense? You clear on it? Everyone understand? So when we use the term culture, we're not speaking about a bad thing. Um, I, you know, if we talk about a heavenly culture, we're not talking about anything that has to do with the way specific items of dress. We're not talking about specific instruments used. We're not talking about specific ways to um, decorate a building. We're not talking about specific ways of, of uh, you know, arranging my house. Heaven has not given us any instructions on those things. There are principles, but um, the culture of heaven, a heavenly culture, has more to do and is especially talking about interrelational dynamics. The culture of heaven is that one of other-centered love, mercy, patience, long-suffering. Those things are heavenly culture, but a particular style of dress, a particular style of music, a particular style of worship, those things are culturally neutral. All right? Does that make sense? Um, yeah, I think that's what I want to say. And uh, I hope you've been blessed by this episode. I'd love to hear your feedback. It's gone on for quite long. I know when I'm by myself, I tend to go on for a while because I don't have Camille reining me in. So that's either good or bad, depending on your perspective. But uh, anyway, thank you for listening. And I just want to really, really urge you, learn how to interpret, study, exegete, examine the culture that you are seeking to bless and serve and be a true missionary. And uh, don't don't uh, focus on um, any particular techniques that seem to be globally effective, but focus on how to be a student, one who actually has a brain and can analyze and interpret rather than simply being a robot that parodies and imitates everyone else's techniques. That's the bottom line, okay? Cool? Sounds like a good deal? We'll catch up with you next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Mission Lab. Our theme song is Portland Hike by Tiny Music. Additional editing by Chris Ergang. Follow us on Twitter at MLabPodcast. Podcast.